Good evening. Good to see you all back this evening for our worship services. Tonight is questions and answers. And uh, I've been looking forward to this, and uh, I hope that you have too. We're following our usual procedure tonight. If you have a question that you weren't able to turn in ahead of time, you can text it to this number, 205-699-2447. And we'll get to your question as best as we can. We try to get to all of them, but sometimes we have more than we have time for. And uh, so we'll do our very best and uh, try to cover a lot of ground. You always give good, good questions, and we are always taken into new areas and new thoughts, new parts of the Bible. And so this usually turns out to be a great study together. First question comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Be turning your Bibles over to that, that great chapter on marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Are there places in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul gives his personal opinion instead of speaking by inspiration? I don't know if you've noticed this in reading through 1 Corinthians 7. It's unique in that it contains these phrases such as, uh, not I but the Lord, not the Lord but I, or according to some translations, in my opinion, Paul says things like this. We don't see him or any other inspired writer saying in other parts of Scripture. So we scratch our heads a little bit on these phrases and wonder what to make of them. And there are two basic positions. One is that Paul is giving an opinion that we could take or leave. And the other is he is differentiating his inspired instruction from the Lord's inspired instruction. So those are the two positions. Are we able to just take Paul's opinion uh, as advice from someone who has a lot of experience but not speaking as an inspired person? Or is this covered by inspiration and he's just saying, I'm adding on to what Jesus gave you when he was on earth in his public ministry? And the best way to answer that question is to look at the verses in 1 Corinthians 7 that use this language. So the first pair of verses I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 and 11. The church at Corinth had been writing to Paul, apparently asking him a number of questions, and he's answering questions about marriage. And overall, the, the question is, is singlehood or celibacy more honorable, more virtuous? holier than marriage? And his answer is a resounding no. In view of uh, the distress they were going through, we're not sure what it was, but some kind of persecution or trouble, it might be better circumstantially to be single, as Paul was single, but you don't get extra points in heaven for being single, is basically what he's saying. But he gets into uh, some details here, and we're going to start in verse 10 because this language appears first in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, and notice he says, Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then verse 11 says, But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The ESV has tried to separate Paul's instruction from the Lord's instruction here. Um, and so basically, he is looking back to what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6 through 9, which begins with uh, the quotation of Genesis 2, 28, where Moses says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
Jesus says, they're in one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Paul is looking back on that instruction from the Lord. He says, this is not me, but this is Jesus. The wife shouldn't separate, shouldn't divorce her husband. The husband shouldn't divorce his wife. But then he adds, he says, if it happens that she does, for some circumstances, she either needs to remain unmarried or work towards reconciliation. Okay, I think that's plain enough that he's looking back on Matthew 19, 6. But we get into more difficulties when we look at the next pair of verses, verses 12 and 13. Now look at this. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. You see how he turned it around? Now I'm talking, not Jesus, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So they're bringing up the issue, what if uh, I'm married to a non-Christian? Would it be better for me to get a divorce so that I don't have a non-Christian influence in my home? And Paul's saying, based on what I learned from Jesus, I say, no, you, you need to stay married because your marriage relationship in itself is holy because God has brought you together. You see, now what are we to make of this, I, not the Lord? Is he saying, now this is just my opinion, you can take it or leave it. If he's saying that, it kind of calls into question everything else Paul writes for me. I mean, how am I to read Paul from here on if I arrive at this conclusion that sometimes Paul just gives his opinion? Is that the way the early Christians viewed the Bible? Is that the way we should view the Bible? No, all scripture is given by inspiration. And so what the, the, the best interpretation of what's going on here is Paul is saying, now this is, this is a gray area if you just look at what uh, Jesus said I'm giving you continuing revelation as an apostle of Christ. And I'm going to add to the inspired word you've already received through Jesus. I'm going to give you more information to help you with this specific problem you're dealing with in Corinth. All right, more. Verse 25. I think some of these later verses will back up what I'm saying. In verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, this would be engagement, I have no command from the Lord. So you look back on Matthew 19, did Jesus say anything about engagement? What, should you stay together or not? No, he didn't. He spoke very briefly about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And he doesn't talk about engagement there in Matthew 19. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, a problem here is the New American Standard Bible and other translations have in place of judgment, opinion. And people go wild with that. Well, this is just Paul's opinion. Well, it's an opinion of an apostle. So even if you go with opinion, his opinion is better than your opinion. It's kind of like the umpire in a baseball game. His opinion is the only one that matters. Right? The people in the fans can cry and moan and groan. But the umpire, his opinion rules the game. So Paul's opinion, it outweighs your opinion. But... The word here is better translated judgment. It's from a Greek term, uh, nome, which uh, is where we get the word gnome from, those little, little characters that sometimes show up right here and all over the building. But the idea behind it is that of wisdom, of truth, of knowledge. Uh, so this is a, a gnomic 
statement, one who has inspired knowledge is giving it. I think that's the way judgment is to be read here. And he says here that he is regarded as trustworthy. Who regards him as trustworthy? The Lord does. Okay, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So if you're engaged, just stay single because of the present distress. Uh, there's persecution, and I think that condition doesn't apply, for instance, to Leeds, Alabama, 2024. I know there's a lot I'm running through here, but let's go on. Verse 40, New American Standard Version has opinion again, where he says, yet in my judgment, she, he's speaking, well, I, I, let me back up and give verse 39 as well. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, New American Standard Version has opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Again, the word opinion, judgment, you've got the background on that. Look at that last statement, though. I have the Spirit of God. Now, some people read that lowercase s. I don't think I've found a translation that has it lowercase, but they read into that. I have the, the character of God. I have a godly nature about me, so you can trust what I have to say as good advice. But I think he's speaking, especially in light of all that he said beforehand, especially chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, that he's speaking about the Holy Spirit and his inspiration and he's saying, I have the Spirit of God. I am inspired by God as I write to you these things, and so you should listen to me. Besides that, turn over to chapter 14, same letter here. Look at verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now that's in the same letter as he's going through question after question after question. He's answering questions here about spiritual gifts, but it's in the same letter. And he's saying, you know, you, you oppose me as a prophet. You oppose me as a specialist. Well, listen, I'm writing to you the command of the Lord. So that's the way we should read it. He's just differentiating between what the Lord said in Matthew 19 and other places on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and what he is adding to those words by means of inspiration. Next question, what is the difference between sin, iniquity, and transgression? Well, they all have to do with, with uh, wrongdoing, and these words are synonymous in many ways, but there is a distinction that can be made, especially when you dig into the original language behind them. Now, both Hebrew words and Greek words behind the English word sin have this meaning of to miss the mark. Like an archer is shooting an arrow and misses the bullseye. And you really get what the bullseye is in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the bullseye. Sin is missing that mark, falling one way or the other. And so righteousness is based on God's nature. We sin when we miss God's nature in our attitudes, in our choices, in our behavior, in our words. Iniquity means crooked. And so again, God's way is a straight path. Iniquity is crooked. Uh, the word there is scolios, like scoliosis, crookedness. Transgression, 
uh, is tra translated from a few words. One is anomia from 1 John 3, 4, which in modern translations is lawlessness. Anomia is the word law, nomia, with the, with the particle A added to it, or alpha, which negates the root. So it's no law, and that's the meaning there. Transgression, I like that because it's the idea of crossing a boundary. Other places, transgression, or sometimes trespasses is used, like Matthew 6, 14 through 15. And again, it's the idea of crossing a boundary. And so you can think about those definitions and think about wrongdoing in different ways. They, they're all kind of pictures of what sin truly is. I like, this, I like the way this question is worded. I don't understand Aaron's response in Mos to Moses in Leviticus 10.9. Actually, it's, I looked that up. It's um, Leviticus 10.19. Let's turn over there. In, at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 10, Nahab, Nahab uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, have broken the law by offering strange fire before the Lord. In other words, they didn't get the fire from the sacred place where it, they were supposed to get it. I don't know if they had a Bic lighter or what, but they brought in unauthorized fire. They didn't follow the law of Moses, and God struck them dead for it. Well, Aaron had two other sons that are mentioned in verse uh, 16 of Le Leviticus 10, and their names are Eleazar, and Ithamar. And this is the same day when they're making atonement for the sin committed by their older brothers. And by the way, after Nadab and Abihu were killed, God instructed Aaron not to grieve or mourn their deaths because he had made an example out of them. So we forget sometimes these are real people. Aaron's going forward. On the outside, he is trying to keep it together on the inside. He's falling apart. He lost two sons. Now his next two sons are serving in that place, and they're supposed to bring sacrifices of atonement and peace because of what had happened earlier that day. And the instructions, according to Moses, were when you make these sacrifices, the priests are to eat the sacrifice in a feast. Now, when something horrible happens, the last thing you want to do is eat. And so they didn't eat the sacrifices. And Moses falls apart. He comes in. He's like, what are you doing? Now they've committed a sin. Nadab and Abihu committed a sin of commission. They offered unauthorized fire. Eleazar and Ithamar are committing sins of omission. They neglected to follow through with the last part of the sacrifice, which is to to eat the sacrifices. And Aaron says this in verse 19, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. In other words, God had grace on Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar and forgave their neglect in that area considering the circumstances that they were in. Let's go to the next one. Why did God designate some animals as clean or unclean? Was it for sanitation or theological? 
Well, this in the next chapter, you have a list of clean and unclean animals. And uh, some of these animals, most notably pigs, are on the unclean list and may have been on that list for sanitary reasons. Uh, if you don't cook pork to the proper temperature, it can be very dangerous. And uh, these were days before, you know, ovens and meat thermometers where you could really get it just right. And so it could be dangerous and there could be problems involved in the storage of that kind of meat and so on. But then there are other animals that were perfectly safe from a sanitary point of view that, that were not permitted to be eaten. And so I don't think you can say this was strictly God protecting his people for health reasons, because that won't work all the way down the list. The fact is he's giving them uh, laws on holiness, and he's making them a peculiar people to show their separation from the world. And this, among other things, are going to separate the Israelites from the pagans who consumed all these animals. Uh, circumcision was the same reason. It wasn't for health reasons. But circumcision was given as a seal to mark the Israelite people. And uh, persecution has occurred toward the Jews for ages and these food laws are one of the reasons they, they stand out as different. And so people often, sadly, hate others who are different from them. And some of the anti-Semitism you see today comes from the differentiation. Of course, that, that law is passed and it's no longer to be followed, but that differentiation set them apart, truly set them apart, and that's what's being involved here in these food laws. In Job, Satan approaches God, but in Genesis, God cursed Satan to crawl on his belly on the earth. Well, it does, Job follows, of course, the early days after creation, recorded in Genesis 3. Uh, Satan seems to be upright, so what's going on here? Well, two things. In Genesis 3, Satan is in the form of a serpent. He is not himself a serpent. And the other thing is, um, I'm not sure... I know a lot of people think of serpents prior to Genesis 3 as having legs. And then uh, when the serpent tempted Eve, God basically cut the legs off of all snakes and they crawl on their bellies from that day forward. And maybe that's what happened. I wasn't there. I don't know exactly. But I think it's more likely that the Lord is using the form of the serpent to make a point as a symbol to say to Satan who had chosen that form, you've chosen an appropriate form, this lowly creature of the dust, of dirt, lowest of low, that is who you are. And so I believe that's what's going on. I don't think uh, Satan was uh, forced to crawl about for the rest of his existence. Um, you know, he's described in Peter as a roaring lion. Well, does it, did he get four legs back? You know, we, we have to see the symbolism and read figuratively where um, it's suggested in Scripture. Are there three forms of angels? I could be a smart aleck and just say yes or no on this, but I think the person who asks this wants me to talk about it a little bit. So I don't know how many forms of angels there are. And um, the answer to this question depends on what you mean by the word form. Uh, you could think in terms of ranks. Uh, there are multiple ranks of angels. 
Michael is an archangel, like a general. Uh, the Bible speaks of heavenly hosts, the, the soldiers, and there are other indications of various ranks of, of angels. Uh, then there are different uh, angels with different natures. Uh, maybe the three forms thought of here are the seraphim, which are mentioned only in Isaiah 6, the cherubim, which are mentioned in Ezekiel, Genesis 3, uh, they were featured on either end of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, these seem to be different from the seraphim in some ways. And then there are the general, general, there's the general classification of angels. There are also angels referred to as ministers. There are angels referred to as watchers in the book of Daniel. And sometimes we're not sure if the writers are just using different wording and its semantics, or if they're referring to different forms, actually. Um, so I don't know how many forms they are, but I know there are thousands upon thousands of the heavenly host, and they uh, serve God in heaven, and uh, they are magnificent creatures indeed. Referencing Bible class this morning, what are things parents can do in addition to prayer to deal with the increasing anxiety and mental health challenges of our young people? This is a good question. Uh, our young people are on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in history. Uh, you just look at the numbers, they're really scary when you consider what our young people are going through in terms of mental health. And to answer this quickly, which is what we need to do in Q&A, I would say every mental health challenge has a cause or causes. And parents need to do what they can to get to the root of the cause. Now, the cause could be spiritual. And that's where Philippians 4, 6 and 7 comes in handy. Because it's talking about a spiritual problem that creates anxiety, namely the problem of trying to control things outside your control. That's when you can cast your anxieties on God and remind yourself that He is in control, and then you can, you can start being concerned about the things that are under your control. But um, not all mental health falls into that category. Uh, so there are chemical causes, there are medical reasons for mental health problems. And uh, I'll just be real with you for a moment. Um, uh, most, if not all of you know, I suffer from Parkinson's disease, which is caused by a depletion of dopamine. And when I first learned I had Parkinson's, I didn't realize the mental health issues that it could cause because I hadn't studied it that much. I didn't know the importance of dopamine. I didn't know this chemical that smooths out your body movements also has to do with your mood. And so I was dealing with these body movements and also feeling terrible and thinking, well, this is me trying to deal with this diagnosis. And then I learned from doctors and research that, no, there's, there's a medical reason. There's, there's chemistry in my brain that's diseased. And so um, knowing that helped me deal with it, just getting to the root of the cause. Well, you may need to see a doctor and sort through that. And it may take a long time, but parents need to understand that doctors are your friends in this regard. 
there could be family dynamics at play. There could be things going on at school. And this is where therapists and counselors are very helpful. Counselors are people who will sit down in a safe place and let you talk through your issues and say whatever needs to be said, and they will be an objective guide with knowledge behind their words to guide you through your problems. I encourage you to make use of Christian counselors. I also have to get on my soapbox about social media. Look, guys, the studies show that every time you get on social media, you feel worse. And I want to tell you guys, as parents and grandparents, we don't want to take your phones away from you. What we want is for you to manage your device usage properly, right? We don't want to take them away. We want you to stay, we want you to have a life outside your phone because these phones are messing with the dopamine levels in your brain and they're making you feel bad. Some of it's the bullying, some of it's the image problems, but some of it is just what's going on chemically in your head when you keep giving yourself that rush of the next post, the next like, the next comment, and you're looking for that over and over again, and your body gets used to this dopamine high, and when you pull away, you feel that withdrawal. I encourage you to look for the cause of the mental illness and take advantage of the, the many, many resources we have around us today in the medical field and counseling, of course, through scripture and prayer in the Bible, and uh, realize that a lot of times the, the causes are a combination of things. You could have sin in your life, and uh, in addition to that, you might also have um, a propensity toward depression. Well, that's a bad combination because you're not able to motivate yourself to repentance and you're not able to accept God's grace because you're, you're also struggling with a, a medical condition of depression. And so bring all those things to bear on the situation and it can be worked through. No matter how bad you're feeling, no matter how low you are, believe me, there are brighter days ahead if you just have faith and know with hope that you can get through it. You can get through any of this. And the biggest lie is what your brain will tell you in a, a moment of anxiety, that it's never going to get better. That's not true. It will get better. How do you handle someone who teaches truth but can't seem to teach in a loving manner? Well, when I find out, I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of folks like this, right? I mean, let's just be honest. There, there are preachers, uh, parents, Bible class teachers, Christians who know book, chapter, and verse. They know the fundamentals, but in the way they deliver it on Facebook, sorry, going back there again, or in Bible class or from the pulpit, it just makes you think, whose side is this guy on? So, how do you handle them? 
I don't think you do handle them. I would say, it's a rare moment where I talk to elders here. I'm not telling you what to do, but if I were an elder and I had somebody in my pulpit or my Bible class who taught the Word of God in a hateful way, I would remove him from that position until he repented. Because he doesn't need to be up there. Teaching involves both the words, the doctrine, and the example. Look at what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Set the believers an example. And so it's teaching and example. If you're not in a position to remove that person, you can remove yourself. You don't have to listen to that. Because it's hypocrisy. Right? And the only thing you can do with hypocrisy is correct it. Why does God not want us to sacrifice animals for worship? Well, one thing to keep in mind is there was only one consecrated place where the animals could be sacrificed for worship under the Old Covenant, and that was the altar for burnt offerings in Jerusalem in the courtyard of the temple. That no longer exists. So that's one problem. Another is those were just shadows pointing to Jesus' sacrifice. And in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 10, he points out that these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They're just pointing at the ultimate sacrifice, which is Christ Jesus. And so we worship on the first day of every week together to remind ourselves in the Lord's Supper of that true, effective sacrifice that all those animal sacrifices were pointing to. Why did God help the Israelites go to war in the Old Testament, but Jesus taught peace in the New Testament? Well, this is a tough one. He had a variation on this one last month, and it's a hard question, um, and it's a big question. So forgive me if I don't fully explore this one. You have to break it down into what was the context of the time. You know, Israel, most obviously Israel of the Old Testament was a physical entity, physical nation, brought about for a physical purpose to bring Jesus into the world as a human being. And so they had to operate on physical terms. And to be a nation, you have to wage war. There's no getting around it. I mean, that, that's the result of nations. Of course, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And he even goes on to say in John 18, 36, where he says that, he says, if it were, then my, then my disciples would, would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. That's the easiest answer to that is, Israel was of this world, and the church, the Israel of God today, is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Was a medium at Endor in 1 Samuel 28 a real medium or a fake that suddenly was given power to bring Samuel's spirit. <clears throat> um, that's a really strange story, isn't it? Uh, a medium is someone who supposedly can speak to the dead. And so Saul, who had outlawed mediums, in fact, put a lot of them to death. After losing Samuel, his advisor and guide, secretly visits in disguise this medium at Endor. I think the King James calls her a witch. And he goes to her, 
and he pays his money or whatever you do in these cases. And he asked her to bring up Samuel for him. And when she does, she's horrified. She's scared to death. She's terrified by the sudden appearance of Samuel. There are two ways to read that. One is that she didn't know it was going to work. Therefore, the answer to the question would be she was a fake and God, for the purpose of communicating to Saul, gave her that ability or worked through her on that occasion. And God has done that in other cases. But also, um, another way to read it is that she learned who Saul was. And that was part of it because she said, you've deceived me, you're King Saul. And she feared that he would put her to death because he'd been killing her medium friends all over the land. I think a little of both is going on here. And I think of parallel accounts such as the wise men in Matthew 2. These guys were astrologers. They looked to the skies for signs. Well, that's a fake religion. You know, you don't look at the horoscopes and really get your future or get good advice. The stars don't tell us anything of that kind. But God knew they would look at the skies, so he gave them a symbol that they would definitely see as testimony to the birth of the Messiah. Well, the same thing is true. Ollie's loose. <laughs> the same thing might be happening here with the medium at indoor. Okay, why do some think physical water baptism isn't essential when it seems pretty clear in the Bible, including Jesus himself saying so in John 3? Well, I know where the person who asked this question stands on this. Uh, why do some people think it's not essential? Well, I can't answer for them very well. I will say the most common objection to saying baptism is for the remission of sins is to call baptism a work and go to texts like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says we're saved by grace through faith. It is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, Galatians 2, 16, we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And then you say, well, baptism is something that you do. It's a work. Therefore, baptism is not essential for salvation. That's usually the objection you will hear when you say, well, in John 3... To use the reference up here, Jesus said, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever is not, does not believe will be condemned. Or Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Or Acts 22, 16, uh, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Or Colossians 2, 12, we're buried with Christ by baptism. Uh, Romans 6, 3 and 4 were buried with him by baptism into death. That like his Christ Jesus raised up from the dead, so we raised to walk in newness of life. 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism now saves you. And many, many other passages teach that um, we need to look at this differently. Is baptism a work? Yes, but read Colossians 2, 12 through 14. Who's doing the work? See, that's important. And according to those verses, Paul says it's the powerful working of God. You're not doing the work. Even the physical act itself is something you've got to put yourself in the hands of a preacher or whoever's administering the baptism, your, your dad or whoever, uh, the person who studied with you, and they lower you into the water and bring you back up. You're, you're in a passive situation there. 
And so that objection of works is something that was dug up a long time ago to try to get around the clear teaching of baptism. Why do people oppose clear teaching? That's a question beyond me. It has a lot to do with tradition. It has a lot to do with misunderstanding. It has a lot to do with theology and the way human beings are. But if we put all of that aside and just read the simple, unadulterated, unvarnished New Testament, what we need to be, do to be saved is, is very clear. Did the people in Nazareth know Jesus was the Messiah during his childhood? Did the news from the shepherds spread from Bethlehem? Did Mary and Joseph tell everyone? Uh, well, these are questions that aren't fully revealed, but I think there is an indication in Luke 2 that Mary and Joseph kept quiet about these things. If you look at what happened after the shepherds learned of the birth of the Messiah, I believe this is Luke 2, Verse 19 says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And there's another place where it says Mary treasured up these things in her heart. And what do you do when you treasure something? Somebody says, well, you value it highly. But the older meaning of the word treasure is to store up in secret. Buried treasure. X marks the spot. That kind of idea. She hid it in her heart. And that's why in John 7, maybe, none of Jesus' brothers believe in him. You know, had they heard all these tales about the circumstances surrounding his birth or that event that occurred in the temple in, in Luke chapter 2 when he was 12, maybe they would have been more open to believing. But I, I, I think that uh, Joseph and Mary kept this fairly quiet so they could raise their child in Nazareth uh, in fairly normal circumstances, so that he could come from humble beginnings. And I think that was very important, that he be someone who came from humble beginnings. Is the book of Enoch a reliable text? No, it's uh, not an inspired text, but it is quoted in the book of Jude, and that may be behind this question. And so here's the way I look at that. Jude was inspired, the book of Enoch was not. But Jude, by inspiration, could pick excerpts from the book of Enoch that express truth and use them for God's purposes. In the same way that Paul you know, quotes uh, pagan poets in Titus chapter 1 or in Acts chapter 17 when he's on Mars Hill. You know, he's speaking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, Greek philosophers in Athens. And you know, it wouldn't do any good to quote from the Hebrew scriptures to that audience. He's got to reason with them and, and reach them where they are. You know, Paul says to the Greeks, I became a Greek. I become all things, all people, that by all means I might save some. So he's quoting from their literature because he was a, a Renaissance man, you might say. He was very well read. He knew uh, inspired sources. He knew non-inspired sources. And under inspiration, he chose them to illustrate the points that he was trying to make so he could communicate with these people. Jude had a Jewish audience familiar with the book of Enoch and this apocalyptic literature. And uh, this type of literature the book of Enoch falls into is called pseudepigrapha, which is basically means um, so-called scripture written under a false name. Enoch did not write this book. But somebody said, you know, Enoch's a great hero of the Bible, and I've got these ideas. I want a bestseller. 
So I'm going to put his name on it and pass it off. It's like somebody today would say, I'm going to try to sell a lot of books on Amazon. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to put the, the name J.K. Rowling on it. And maybe I'll fool some people into buying it. Well, you might fool some people into buying it, but then you're going to get sued and put under the jail. So that's the kind of thing that was going on back then, and that's what the book of Enoch is. But Jude knew there was a part of Enoch. Maybe it was passed down through oral tradition. I don't know how the author of the book of Enoch got that information, but that part of it that's quoted in Jude is true, and by inspiration, Jude knew that. When Jonah was successful in teaching the Ninevites, why was he angry when they repented? He was scared. And we get angry when we're scared. Uh, The Ninevites were bloodthirsty people. They would skin people alive. They would reach into their mouths and pull out their tongues. They would hang them on walls. They would do horrible things to show their power. This was Assyrian culture. They bragged about this kind of thing. You come up to a a place, a city uh, conquered by the Ninevites, and uh, you find it raised to the ground with stakes outside, poles with human heads on top of them. This people talk about piles of skulls left behind by the Assyrians. Now put yourself in Jonah's shoes, who in addition to knowing that about the Ninevites, also knew the prophecies of his contemporaries, which said the Assyrian people, of which Nineveh was the capital, will destroy the Israelites. You know this prophecy. You know God doesn't lie. You know it's coming. And not only do you want to be destroyed, you don't want to be destroyed like that. Now you go... Reluctantly, after being vomited up by a fish, and you preach, and you're Jonah, and you're like, well, I have to be here, but these people, he's in denial, these people, they're, they're not going to repent. But they do. And so now he's in agony because he's picturing the things he's heard happening to himself and to the mothers and children of Israel. I'm not excusing his behavior. We should never mourn when somebody repents. If our worst enemy in the world comes to God, we should be the first to embrace them and rejoice. But Jonah was a human being, and we ought to be able to tap into those emotions and understand what's going on in his head a little bit. Okay, we're out of time. I didn't even look at the clock until that slide came up, but I'm sure we probably didn't get to everybody's question. We tried to do our best, and we went through quite a few And I want to encourage you to keep asking questions. We have uh, one more before the open home meeting break in uh, the month of February. So I look forward to doing this again then. Before we conclude, we want to extend the Lord's invitation. God is gracious and he's given us this hour to be here. Maybe something is standing between you and God. Maybe it's a failure to obey him. We talked about the importance of baptism, for example, tonight. Maybe you're ready to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. We're prepared for that. We're always ready for that. We would love to see you baptized into Christ this evening. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need to be restored. Don't leave without having done the things that need to be done so that you can be right with God. We're going to have an invitation song selected. If we can help you in any way, we pray that you'll come right now as we stand together and as we sing.